Well, this morning we are up to chapter 3. Chapter 3 in our verse-by-verse study through the book of 2 Peter. The passage where we're at is uh, verses 8 and 9. As we identified last Sunday, the major theme of 2 Peter chapter 3, it has to do with the second coming of Christ. That's the big doctrine which is sort of overarching the entire chapter. Uh, This was a specific doctrine, the second coming of Jesus. This was a specific doctrine that false teachers in Peter's day, they were seeking to try to undermine, they were seeking to discredit, they were seeking to distort and deny this specific doctrine, this specific teaching of the second coming of Christ. And we know that these unconverted false teachers were doing so, they did not like to focus on the second coming of Christ simply because they loved their sinful lifestyle too much. And what the second coming of Christ um, did for them, the, the doctrine or the teaching of the second coming of Christ did, is that it reminded these unconverted false teachers that they would one day be held, held accountable for their sinful actions and that they would one day be judged by Christ. And so instead of turning from that sinful lifestyle, and turn to, instead of repenting, instead of trusting the Savior, what they did is that they sought to mock the idea of Christ's return, scoff at the the idea of Christ's return, scoff at the idea, ridicule the idea, the the fact that Jesus would return a second time. And so with that backdrop in mind, well, we ask ourselves, well, how does Peter combat this? How does he deal with false teachers within the church who would deny certain doctrines to try to uphold their sinful lifestyle? Well, firstly, we saw last week that Peter directed our thoughts to the teaching of the Old Testament prophets and also the New Testament apostles, both which taught very explicitly, very clearly, that Christ would return again, that he would judge his enemies, that he would establish his kingdom on earth where he would reign forevermore. But in addition to this, in addition to directing our thoughts to the teaching of the the Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, well, in addition to this, Peter also directed our thoughts to Two significant historical events. Two events where God directly intervened in human history. Firstly, Peter pointed to the creation of the universe. That was certainly a time when God intervened. He brought about creation. But the second event that he drew our attention to is the worldwide flood. And Peter did this very specifically. He directed it to these two historical instances so that he could try to refute the claims of these false teachers, the claim that things would just continue on the way that they always had, and this idea that God would intervene in human history, send Christ to earth, well, that he was trying to refute that, the idea that this would just never happen, is what, the, is what the false teachers were saying. The false teachers were saying things would continue the way that they would always have been. There's going to be no intervention It's just a fable to think that Jesus would be returning a second time. And so the point really that Peter left us with last week is simply this, that just as God has intervened in human history through creation, through the flood and past times, well, so too God will intervene in human history in the future when Christ returns a second time. We were left with the thought of the certainty of Christ's return. That is the case that he built for us, as we saw in last week's passage. And really what that does, is it brings us right up to today's passage, where Peter's thought, it moves from the certainty of Christ's return to now the timing of Christ's return. 
In some ways, Peter is still talking to the objection of the false teachers, the objection which we saw in verse 4 last week. You know, the, the objection who took the delay in Christ's return to mean that it was never going to happen. So in some ways, he's still kind of speaking to that. And so as Peter begins now to further speak to this point, speak to the objection, speak to the, 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 the theology, or you might want to call the, the error of the false teachers, well, he's going to further speak on this in verses 8 and 9, as we're going to see here this morning, concerning the timing of Christ's return, speaking to the objection that they're throwing towards him. And we can divide today's passage into two parts. I mean, how many, how many parts can you divide two verses? You'd be surprised. Today, we're only going to do it in two parts. And so firstly, we're going to see in verse we're going to see in verse uh, 8 the timing of Christ's return. And then secondly, verse 9, the delay in Christ's return. This is how we can divide the passage that we're going to be looking at today. The timing, secondly, the delay. Now for the original audience that Peter was writing to, this passage was incredibly necessary. It was incredibly necessary for them to, to, to think correctly about the lead up to Christ's return. Christ has not yet returned a second time, so how are we to think about it? Very necessary for them. But in a similar way, this passage is incredibly necessary for our own thinking to ensure that we are living our lives now in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back a second time. To ensure that we're thinking correctly about our time here on earth and the here and now in light of the fact that Jesus will return and that he could return at any, at any moment, perhaps even at a moment that we least expect. And so let's begin by giving our attention now to verse 8, and this is where Peter speaks about the timing of Christ's return. Notice what he says there in verse 8. He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, uh, that, that with the Lord one day is as a, a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now the first thing we want to identify is, well, who is Peter speaking to? Well, he's, he's speaking to believers, isn't he? That's what he refers to at the beginning of verse 8, where he refers to them as beloved. But notice also that Peter's word of exhortation to believers, he says, Beloved, do not forget this one thing. Now, <clears throat> this is not the first time in this chapter that Peter has talked about forgetfulness. We saw it back in verse 5 that Peter talked about forgetfulness in the minds and the lives of false teachers. They denied the return of Christ because they were forgetful in terms of what God had done in the past in, in human history, where he had intervened in human history. They were forgetful. But here in verse, verse 8, Peter, he's now talking about forgetfulness once again, but this time he is speaking to believers, and he's specifically addressing about the timing of Christ's return. And so what is a specific thing? What's the specific thing that Peter does not want us, as God's beloved, as believers, what is the one thing that Peter does not want us to forget? Well, as he says it there in the rest of verse 8, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Don't forget it. That's what he's saying. Now, what does he mean? What is he saying here? What, what does Peter mean when he gives us this phrase here that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years as one day? Well, Peter's wanting to communicate a truth about God. He wants to communicate to us a truth about God, 
And he does so by directing our thoughts to a specific portion of Old Testament Scripture. This specific portion of Old Testament Scripture has to be, happens to be Psalm 90, verse 4. And it's where the psalmist says this. He says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. Now, the context of Psalm 90, it has to do with the eternity of God. It is an attribute of God, the eternity of God. And that is in contrast to the temporal nature of human beings. That is the context of Psalm 90. For instance, in verse 2 of Psalm 90, just a couple verses back, the psalmist speaks of the eternity of God in this way. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world... Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, this is the idea that Peter has in mind in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. It has to do with the, an attribute of God known as the eternity of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean when we say that God is eternal? What do we mean when we talk about the eternity of God? Well, the eternity of God means that God transcends or God is outside of all limitations of time. Because God has no beginning, because God has no end, he does not exist in time and in space in the way in which we do as human beings. In other words, God is not confined, he's not conditioned by limits or lengths of time. Now, if you're anything like me, we're, kind of, we're thinking of this and we're going, well, this is kind of hard for us to grasp, isn't it? This is not an easy concept for us to grasp because each and every one of us have, have never lived within this realm before. Our existence has always been within time. All that we've ever known is what it is to live within the confines of time. And so it shouldn't surprise us if we find it a little bit difficult to try to imagine, to try to picture what that means that God is eternal, that he lives outside of time and outside of space. You see, we view, we view the passing of time how? We, we view the passing of time in terms of minutes and hours and days and weeks and years. That's how we view the passing of time. Very regimented, very calculated, pockets of, pockets of time. That's how we measure it. But not so with God. God, who is eternal, he lives outside of the confines of time. What happens when we go to make plans? When we go to make plans, what happens? Our plans are always based upon time. In this specific year, on this specific day, at this specific time, I plan to do this or that. But God, on the other hand, he makes and he decrees his plans and he does so outside of the confines of human time. He doesn't use time like saying, oh, this year and at that day and at that minute, that's, that's what I'm going to do. He does. He's not restrained. He's not confined to that. There's no limitations there. When God looks at the, in, the entire existence of human history, when he looks at everything that takes place right from the beginning, right to the end, when he looks at all of human history, he can see it all at one time. It's, there, it's right there, present time, right there before him. And what's going to take place a hundred years from now, what may take place a thousand years from now, humanly speaking, God looks at that 
as though it were happening in the here and the now. He's all-knowing. He's eternal. There's no time constraints. He sees everything. He sees his plan all in, in, in one piece. And really, that's the point of Psalm 90, verse 4. That because God is eternal, he does not experience time in the way that we do. What this means is that we cannot interpret God's timetable by our human reckoning of time. God, is not, God does not have a timetable. He's not thinking about time in the way that we do. He sees it all in one, one, one big kind of uh, uh, picture right before him. It's not all divided up in years and minutes as it is in our thinking. And so we can't interpret God's timetable by our reckoning, our human reckoning of time. What may seem like a, an incredibly long time for us is, is somewhat of a blip of time to God. And so why is Peter wanting to raise his thought? Why is he directing our thought? Why does he have Psalm 90 verse 4 in his mind? And how does this relate to the second coming of Christ? Well, as we know, the New Testament church expected that Jesus could return at any time. There was an expectancy that Jesus could return at any time. The word that we use to describe this is the word imminence, or the imminent return of Christ. What does that mean? It means Jesus could return at any time. He could return before the sermon is over. I mean, some of you might be praying for that. We haven't gone, it hasn't gone too long yet, but maybe by the end of it, you'll say, oh, Lord, please take us. Rapture me. Save me from the suffering. No, you wouldn't say that. The imminent return of Christ means it could come at any time. And we know that the early church held this belief. For instance, Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says, And do this, knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. It's coming soon. Philippians 4, 5, Let your gentleness be known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. He's not afar off. James chapter 5, verse 8, he says, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's soon. It's not that far away. We don't know when it's going to be, but it's coming. It's going to be soon. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says, But at the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And then we read passages such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is where, Peter, uh, where Paul is talking about the rapture of the church. And I want you to notice the, the personal pronouns that are used. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And notice it there in verse 17. Then we, he says, who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. What are we seeing here? We see that when Paul spoke about the things, when he spoke about these things, when he spoke about those who would die before Christ's return, well, he clearly did not include himself in that number. He talked about those who have died, but then he says, but we who are alive and remain when he counted himself among that number, those who were alive and remain. We who are alive and remain at the return of Christ. Because again, the early New Testament church, they held the belief of the imminent return of Christ that it could happen at any moment. But as time passed on, what happened? Well, this expectation was called into question, as we know, by false teachers 
in particular the false teachers that Peter is dealing with here. This expectation in the, in the thinking of some, it began to fade in the thinking of some. For some people, the delay in Christ's return, which had not happened within their expected time frame, was perhaps causing them to dismiss the idea altogether. Oh, I'll just get on with life. It hasn't happened this year. It hasn't happened the year before that. I'm just going to get on with my life. But we see here in verse 8 that Peter wants to bring reassurance to believers on this issue of timing. Peter wants us to realize that our perception of time is not the same as God's perception of time. In other words, God views the passage of time differently compared to what we do. As humans, what do we tend to do? As humans, we tend to be impatient. We are impatient and we become disturbed and even upset even at a very short delay. Where's my dinner? You know, why hasn't the rubbish truck come yet to pick up the rubbish? He's 20 minutes late. I mean, for us as humans, that's the, that's the nature of us, isn't it? We, we are impatient at times. We become disturbed even at the shortest delay of, of what we expect to take place. But we have to understand God is not like us. God is patient. He is willing to let, in our time, centuries go by, even millennia go by, in order to work out his plans, in order to work out his purposes. Now, it's important to understand that Peter is certainly not telling us that it's wrong to hold the belief of imminence, that Jesus could return at any time. He's not saying that is wrong, but what he is saying is wrong is if we are being impatient because Christ is not returning as quickly as we might like, or as quickly as we might hope for, or as quickly as we might expect. Now, <clears throat> before moving on to verse 9, there are just a couple of important additional points, I think, to mention here. It's important for us to note that Peter does not say, in verse 8 there, one day is a thousand years to God. He doesn't say that, does he? Instead, he says one day is as a thousand years. Or other translators would put it like this, one day is like a thousand years to God. He doesn't say that a, a day to God is equal to a thousand years in human time. He doesn't say that. But instead, instead he's saying from God's perspective, it's like that. In other words, hey, what seems like a long time to you is really not big in, in, in God's scheme of things. God is eternal. He is outside of time and space. Now, why is this important to point out? Why is it important to point out that he says it's like a thousand years, not is a thousand years? Well, one reason it's important to point this out is because there are some people, in particular, those who cannot accept the biblical account of creation, that the universe was created, according to Scripture, in six literal days. There are some who want to try to incorporate evolutionary, fake evolutionary the theoretical ideas when it comes to the matter of origins. And what they'll often do is that they'll quote this verse that we're looking at today. They'll try to say that, hey, you know what? Look what it says there in verse, verse 8 there. You know, it's like a thousand years. You know, it's, it's, it's a thousand years to, to, to God. One day is like a thousand years. And they try to use that verse to incorporate the evolutionary ideas that God used evolution to create the universe over many thousands of years. After all, a day is a thousand years to God, they'll say. No, it's not. That's not what the text says. It says 
A day is as a thousand years, or a day is like a thousand years. Peter is clearly using comparative language. He's making an analogy. He's making a comparison here. But the second thing I want for us to notice clearly, closely here is that the specific, the specific context in which this comparison or this analogy is actually being used. You see, Peter is not using the comparison here in relation, in the context of the relation to creation. He's not, we don't see this passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, in other words. This is not where we see it. But instead, what do we see it? We see it within the context, using it in reference specifically to Christ's return, helping believers make sense in the seeming delay of Christ's return. That is the context in which this verse is actually given to us and inspired within Scripture. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that for us to try to take a phrase like this in any other context and try to apply it to any other context is clearly going beyond the biblical usage of it, and therefore, any conclusions that we might come from, from taking a verse and trying to apply it to a different context, well, it's not valid. It's not valid, biblically speaking, because that is not the way that it's used within the Scriptures. And so as Peter continues now, to refute the claims of false teachers who denied the second coming of Christ, this is just, a, this is just another way that he does it. He wants to, to help us to understand that the seeming delay, the seeming delay to us is simply due to the fact that God is eternal, that he views the passage of time differently and from a different perspective compared to us. Therefore, for us, we cannot interpret God's timetable by our human reckoning of time. This is the idea that Peter has and is presenting to us here in verse 8. Nothing to do with creation, right? But specifically talking about how to think rightly about the second coming, the timing of the second coming of Christ. Well, moving on from the the timing of Christ's return, verse 8, Peter next explains the delay in Christ's return That's verse 9. And notice how he puts it there in verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, do we see what Peter is wanting to explain to us here? What is the idea that Peter wants to communicate to us? Well, in verse 9, Peter explains to us the purpose for why Christ has not yet returned. The reason for why Christ has not returned. Why hasn't he returned yet? Well, he gives us the reason here. I mean, false teachers at that time, they put it down to slackness. That's the word that Peter uses in the New King James Version there. They put it down to slackness. If you say, why has Jesus not returned yet? They'd say, it comes down to slackness. The word means delayed or late. It, has, it carries with it the idea, the Greek term carries with it the idea of someone who is distracted, someone who is unable, someone who is incapable, someone who is forgetful. This is what they put it down to. The reason that God, or that Christ has not returned yet is because of slackness. But Peter here is like, no, 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 no. It's not slackness. It's not like God's forgotten. It's not like he's unable or that he's distracted with something else. No, 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 no. The reason that Christ has not yet returned is not a matter of slackness on God's part, but instead the reason for why he has delayed Christ's second coming is because God is patient. 
and because God is gracious. That's the reason. That's the reason for why Christ has delayed his coming. Or he, he has not yet come, I should say. Or it may seem like a delay from our perspective. It's because God is gracious, because God is patient. We can put it this way. For everyone who will be saved, God is giving them the opportunity to be saved. That's the reason. That's the reason why Christ has not yet come. But notice that Peter says that it requires on God's part a lot of long-suffering. A lot of long-suffering for God as he's, as he's delaying Christ's return. Christ has not yet returned, giving the opportunity for all those who will be saved an opportunity to be saved. It requires a lot of long-suffering. I mean, God's looking on the world around us. He sees what? He sees the evil that's taking place. He sees rebellion. He sees wickedness. He sees hard-heartedness towards him. And, and as God looks upon this, we know that there is somewhat of a, a reservoir of judgment that is being added to every single minute of every single day. A big reservoir that is filling up as he looks upon what is taking place around the world. But one day we know from Scripture that the banks of that reservoir, they are going to collapse and God's judgment will be poured out on, uh, for sin upon the unbelieving world around us. But in the meantime, that judgment is accumulating. That judgment is being stored up. And the reason for God doing this, the reason that the banks of that reservoir of judgment have not yet burst and flowed into the unbelieving world is simply because he's giving mankind an opportunity to repent and to be saved. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. This is the reason for why Christ has not yet come. It's because God is patiently waiting for those who he has purposed to save. And can I just say, aren't we glad that Christ hasn't returned yet? Aren't we glad in some ways that he didn't return back in Peter's day? I mean, if Christ had returned back in Peter's day, we wouldn't be part of that number, would we? Why don't we put it this way? Aren't we glad that Jesus didn't return the day before we were converted? That wouldn't have, been a, wouldn't have been a good scene, would it? Imagine that. Aren't you glad that that didn't happen then? You see, God's long-suffering is not something that should cause us to doubt him. If anything, God's long-suffering is something that should cause us to praise him. There are people who want to turn around, they misunderstand, they misjudge the heart of God, and they turn it around on him and they accuse him. That's not what we should be doing. We shouldn't be doubting him. We shouldn't be accusing him. Instead, we should be praising him. Yes, we should all have a yearning within our hearts for the return of Christ one day, yet at the same time, that thought should always be balanced out that, hey, every single day that passes by in which Christ has not yet returned, it is giving yet another opportunity, another day, for our unbelieving friends, for our unbelieving family, for our unbelieving neighbors and work colleagues and those who are in our lives, it's giving them yet another day for them to come to Christ. And so we want to hold that balance rightly. Yes, we want to look forward to the return of Christ, but every day that goes by, it's yet just another opportunity for those who are not yet saved. Again, the delay in Christ's return, it demonstrates how patient and how long-suffering God actually is. 
you think your heart feels burdened when you see the sin and the wickedness and the, the rebellion against God within the, in the world? You think your heart feels burdened? Think about how God's heart feels. Yet even then, that kindness, graciousness, long-suffering, patience with us. This is the point that Peter wants to get across in this verse for us. Now, unfortunately, this particular verse is sometimes misunderstood. Sometimes this verse is distorted to those who hold to a more, can I say, a a man-centered view of salvation. It's twisted and distorted. In other words, there are some people who will try to use this verse, along with one or two others, to try to deny the doctrine of unconditional election. The doctrine that would say that God has chosen some to be saved, yet not all. And some people would use this verse for that very, for that very reason. John Piper, he once put it this way. He said, Arminians have erred in trying to take pillars of universal love and make them into weapons against electing grace. Taking the pillars of universal love and making them into weapons against electing grace. And this is unfortunate. It's unfortunate because Peter is not teaching here on the subject of predestination. No one can grab that from that. He is not talking about predestination. He is not talking about about the the will of God in in terms of his, his, his own, God's plans and purposes within himself. But instead what he's talking about is the reason for Christ's delay. If this verse was written in, let's say, Ephesians chapter 1, or in Romans chapter 9, where it does teach so explicitly about the doctrine of unconditional election, well, that would be a different story. It would be a completely different story. But that is not where this verse is placed. It's not placed there. And so for a person to try to use a verse like this to, 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 to see, well, God doesn't wish that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance, therefore denying the, the doctrine of unconditional election, for a person to try to disprove that doctrine that's clearly taught elsewhere... That's nothing less than not rightly, not rightly handling the word of truth. Another passage which has a universal kind of nature to it is 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. And this is where Paul says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, in both of these instances, we see that universal language is being used, don't we? All. You know, we see the word all being used there. When it's in in specific reference to God's desire for people to be saved. There's universal language that's being used. But instead of using the synthesis principle of interpretation, what is that? It's simply just cross-referencing. Instead of trying to understand passages in light of what the whole counsel of God teaches, unfortunately there are some who would deny an essential attribute of God and they would seek to deny a whole ocean of Scripture which teaches very explicitly about the sovereignty of God in salvation. Denying all the rest of it because of just a couple of verses. And so, as we bring this study to a close, and I don't want to kind of give you an impression that we're going to close anytime soon. But as we bring this study to a close, I just want to spend a couple moments now, moments, um, 
just speaking to this issue that will hopefully provide somewhat of a, a theological way for us to understand this. I mean, I, I think we've done an exposition of verse 9, haven't we? We've tried to understand it in the context, we've used, looked at the words, we're trying to understand what he means, or what, was the, what was the original intention for what Peter meant when he first wrote that letter. I, I think we've accomplished that. But I just want to spend some moments to say, how can we understand it by those who would try to use this verse as a proof text to try to deny quite an essential, bigger doctrine, which is very important for us to, to understand correctly. And so let's start with the objection, shall we? <clears throat> the objection to verses like 2 Peter 3, verse 9, and you know, 1 Timothy verse, um, 2, verse 4, the objection is, is simply this. The obje- objection goes, if God only purposed to choose some people to be saved... Well, doesn't this contradict passages which state God's universal desire for all people to be saved? Well, understandably, there are some people who have difficulty trying to reconcile the doctrine of unconditional election with passages like 2 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Peter. They see passages like these seeming to talk about God's desire for salvation to be universal, And then they struggle to reconcile that with the doctrine of unconditional election, which states that God has not chosen to elect everyone for salvation, but he's only chosen to elect some. And what's interesting about that is despite the, as I mentioned, despite the the, the vast number of passages that speak about election, despite the, the vast number of passages which speak about the doctrine of God's decree, there are some people who dismiss all of that all of the the doctrine of unconditional election, they would choose not to give it another thought based upon a few verses which appear to be universal in nature. But really, that's not the correct way to handle the Word of God. Do you want to know what that's called? It's called proof texting. That's what it is. Proof texting is the practice of using isolated, out-of-context quotations to try to provide support for one's own opinions or one's own agenda or one's own bias. Taking a verse, just a random verse, and going, it must mean that, out of context, a few isolated passages, that's what's called proof texting. Now, obviously, the weight of Scripture is pointing, and if the the weight of Scripture is pointing in a a certain direction, if it's going in a a certain direction, there are a, a few isolated passages which seem to be pointing at first glance maybe in an opposite direction, well, it's not good practice to automatically dismiss the greater because we have a few question marks over the lesser. That kind of makes sense? It doesn't make any sense to do that. And so it is with the passages that appear to be communicating God's desire for salvation to be universal for all mankind. And so we ask the question, well, what is the correct way to think about these passages that seem to be universal in nature? Or taking it a step further, if it is God's will for everyone to be saved, why isn't that the case? Well, for those who hold a, a, a foreknowledge view of election, for those who think that God looks down the corridor of time and sees those who would trust Jesus and therefore on that basis of their decision, he then chooses them. Those who hold to a foreknowledge view of election, which is part of the wider school of thought known as Arminianism, well, they would answer the question this way. 
Why hasn't God chosen to, to save everyone? This is what they'll say. They'll say, although God desires for everyone to be saved, God has chosen to preserve the free will of mankind. Although he has a desire, God wants to preserve free will. And because God has chosen to preserve free will of mankind, not everyone will exercise their free will to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, God's will and God's desire for all man to be saved, it cannot be met because of the actions of mankind. That is the thinking. It is essentially the idea that mankind is able to prevent God's will from happening. It's the idea that mankind can prevent God's desires from taking place. And so that's one way that people understand passages that seem to communicate God's desire for salvation to be universal. Now, obviously, there are some incredibly big problems with this foreknowledge, free will type of view of uh, salvation. Some big, big problems. Firstly, this view is contrary to the doctrine of God's decree, that God has decreed all that would happen, as, clear, as Scripture clearly states. It's also contrary to the doctrine of God's sovereignty, another very you know, connected doctrine, essential do- doctrine. It's contrary to the doctrine of God's sovereignty because what it states is that mankind... Mankind is ultimately in control of what happens rather than God, in particular when it comes to salvation. Man is in the driver's seat. The second problem with this is that this view is contrary to the doctrine of man's depraved condition. You see, according to Scripture, if salvation was left up to the free, free will of mankind, who would be saved? No one would be saved according to Scripture. Because there is not a single verse of Scripture, not a single one. I always ask people, please come and show me one if you think you you have one. There is not a, a single verse in Scripture that says that a person could or even would ever use their free will to place their trust in Christ without God's direct and specific intervention in bringing this about. Not a single verse, not one. The only conclusion that one can draw from a foreknowledge Arminian view is that God's desire to preserve free will of mankind, God's desire for free will is more important to God than the salvation of all mankind. That's the only conclusion that you can come to, right? That that, that man's free will is more important to God, according to the Arminian free will kind of, you know, argument or idea, God preserving man's free will is more important than man's salvation. Now, there are some problems in that kind of thinking, isn't there? Firstly, this conclusion is not supported by Scripture. It's just not there. You won't find it in Scripture. We do not find anywhere in Scripture that the priority of God is to preserve the free will of mankind. We don't see that. But secondly, this is kind of a lame kind of reason, It just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, how could the preservation of man's free will be more important to God than the salvation of man's soul? Let me ask the question. How could that be the case? 
How could God say, well, the reason that I didn't elect everyone is because I wanted to preserve man's free will. Man's free will is more important to me than the salvation of man's soul. Which is more important? Free will or eternal destiny? And so I think we can safely disregard the foreknowledge, Arminian understanding of these universal passages. It is not supported by Scripture. It's a man-centered focus. It's not a God-centered focus. It's diminishing the sovereignty of God, the power of God. We should dismiss them. We must dismiss them. But this still leaves the question, well, how should we understand it? How do we understand these passages of Scripture which talk about salvation having a, a universal nature to them? How do we understand that? We talked about how not to understand it, but how should we understand it? Well, there are two things, and these are two theological kind of handles or building blocks that will help us in our thinking when we come to universal passages like this. It, tells, it helps us to understand that we can still hold to the doctrine of unconditional election while not trying to skip over passages like 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The first is this. <clears throat> when Scripture uses universal language, it is not always intended to communicate something which is strictly universal. When Scripture uses universal language, it's not always intended to communicate something which is strictly universal. Sometimes that is the intention. Sometimes it is. Like in Romans 3.23, what does Paul say? He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's universal. He uses the word all. It's intended to be a strictly universal statement. Not just some have sinned, but all have sinned. After all, he's just finished dedicating um, uh, chapters 1, 2, and part of chapter 3, laying out this doctrine that, that, that all mankind are condemned by their sin before God. And so the climax of that is, yes, all have sinned fallen short of the glory of God. But then there are times when Scripture uses universal language that's not intended to be communicating something that is strictly universal. Let me give you an example of this. Acts chapter 4 and verse 21. After Peter and John had healed the lame man at the door of the temple, well, what happened? They were arrested. And it says, the Jewish authorities say, it says that the Jewish authorities, it says that they let them go, finding no way of punishing them, because the people, um, since they all glorified God for what had been done. There's some universal language there. All glorified God. Now, we know that although it says that all glorified God, this is obviously not to be taken as a strictly universal statement because we know that there were many Jews in Jerusalem at that time that they opposed Peter and John's ministry. In this instance, the, the word all probably is mean, meant to be intended to mean many or a lot or maybe a certain group of people. All the believers were going to be glorifying God. And so that's how we take the word, a universal language, that's how we would take it. It certainly wasn't intended to communicate that every single person in Jerusalem was glorifying God. We know biblically and historically that was just not the case. Well, how about Luke chapter 21, verse 17? It's where Jesus tells his disciples, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Again, there's universal language that's being used here, but the intent is to communicate something that's other than that which is strictly universal. 
After all, we know that although many people opposed the ministries of the disciples, we know that there were some who were open to it, some who were sympathetic to their ministry. But to make it even more specific now to the subject of salvation, we're talking about universal statements of Scripture in other areas. I want to make it very specific to salvation because this is how it's, you know, passages like it's 2 Peter 3.9 are used. How about John 12, verse 32? And this is where Jesus predicts the result of his crucifixion. He says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Now, Jesus certainly isn't, uh, Jesus is certainly using universal language, but he's not intending to communicate something that's strictly universal. He's not saying that every single individual in the world will be drawn to him because he will be crucified. We know biblically and historically that is just not the case. But instead, what Jesus most likely meant is that large multitudes of peoples from all nations, from all classes, from all backgrounds would, all, would be drawn to him and therefore they would be saved, very consistent with what we see in Scripture. And so when Jesus uses the word all, he's not talking about every single person in the world. Instead, he's talking about all in the sense of a certain people being saved from, a, from, a people being saved from every people group, every tribe, every nation coming. So he's using the word all in that sense. And so the same principle can be applied when we look to these other universal passages, such as 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, and 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, for, the, for it is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, although universal language is being used, it's not intended to, to communicate something that is strictly universal. And the reason we know this is because if there is anything that God desires, now hear this, if there is anything that God desires to have happen, if there is anything that God wills to happen, you can be sure 100% that it will come to pass. If the, if the creator, God, all-powerful, almighty God, eternal God, if he wants something to happen, I can tell you, it is going to happen. There's not going to be someone... My free will is standing in the way of the almighty God's purposes. No. It's rubbish. Unsupported by Scripture. If God purposed for every single person throughout human history to be saved, that would most certainly be the case. God's will is never, never at the mercy of mankind. God's desires are never at the mercy of mankind. Never. Mankind never has the ability to prevent the all-powerful, eternal God from doing whatever it is that he desires. If you try to hold to a doctrine or a portion of doctrine that would make that the case, then really you're putting man as God. You're not putting God as God. You're diminishing the sovereignty and the power of God. And I don't think that's somewhere where we want to be. We need to think through the implications of our, our beliefs and the things that we're holding to. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, when Paul says that God desires all men to be saved, we can take this to mean that God desires people from every people group, every tribe, every nation to be saved. Something that was very foreign in the minds of the Jews in that day, who thought it was only a specific people where it would be. No, all people. I want all to be saved. Not just the Jews, everyone. 
In addition to understanding the universal use of language, well, there's a second thing. This is the final thing, by the way. A second thing to bear in mind when understanding passages that talk about God's desire for salvation in a universal kind of way. And here's the second thing, the, the second theological building block for our thinking. And that is simply this. There is a distinction between the hidden will of God and the revealed will of God. A distinction between the hidden will of God and the revealed will of God. I mean, this principle is seen in places such as Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those uh, which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, what is the, the secret or the, uh, the hidden will of God and the revealed will of God? Well, the revealed will of God is what God communicates of what man should do or what man should know the revealed will of God. Whereas the hidden will of God, well, this has to do with God's eternal plans of what will actually take place. The revealed will of God, what God wants mankind to know. The hidden will of God, what God has purposed that will actually take place, will actually come to pass. For instance, when we look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we are given <clears throat> what is known as the revealed will of God, aren't we? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As the revealed will of God, this is the message that we are to communicate to the unbelieving, unconverted world. And bear in mind the context in which Peter wrote this, this verse here. He is dealing with the scoffer. He is dealing with the person who is making light out of the things of God. He's dealing with the person who is trying to resist the gospel by saying that there is going to be no coming day of judgment, that everything is going to continue the way that it always has. And so what is Peter's response to this? What is the message that the unconverted are to be communicated to the unconverted to those who are mocking the things of God? What are you to say to them? Well, Peter's message certainly is not the hidden will of God, is it? You know, he's a, here's what you say to the false teachers. This is, this is what you say to the unbelieving world. He doesn't say this, does he? He doesn't say, this is what you do. Continue as you are, because who knows, God might just save you one day, and if he's chosen to save you, then you will be saved. He doesn't say, if God has elected you, then one day you'll come to faith. But if he hasn't elected you, well, that's just too bad. The future's not going to look too bright for you. I mean, that's not the gospel. The, the, the hidden will of God is not the gospel. Now, obviously, our message to the unbeliever is not the hidden will of God. When we're evangelizing, our message is not the doctrine of unconditional election. It, it's simply not. But instead, our message is the revealed will of God. As Peter puts it here in verse 9, we are to communicate to them that they are heading down the road of destruction, that they will eventually perish unless they change their thinking about God and change their thinking about God's plan for salvation. And that the reason that God's judgment has not yet come upon them is why? Because God is gracious, God is patient, God is long-suffering toward them. But they shouldn't take his long-suffering for granted. Instead, what? They should repent. They should change their mind. Trust in Christ. 
This is the revealed will of God, and this is the message that Peter communicates in response to those who would mock the gospel. Don't communicate to them about um, unconditional election. Communicate to them God's desire for people to be saved. This is the message that we are to share with the unconverted. Now, the thing to recognize here is that the hidden will of God and the revealed will of God, they're not opposed to each other. It's not like one or the other. They're not contradictory to one another. They're just different. They're just different. Again, God's revealed will is communicating what God expects man to do, communicating how man is to think. God's hidden will has to do with God's sovereign and eternal plans of what will actually happen. Scripture gives to us both of those things, but we need to be careful in how we communicate that depending upon our audience. This is another way that we can understand passages which appear to be universal, have a universal nature to them. And so think back to the initial um, objection. What is the objection? And what, is, what do people try to use? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, as a proof text for, well, the objection is this. If God only purposed to choose some people to be saved, doesn't this contradict passages which state God's universal desire for all people to be saved? And they use it as a proof text. Now, how do we answer it? We answer it in this way. Firstly, we answer it by saying, number one, When Scripture uses universal language, it's not always intended to communicate something that is strictly universal. That's the first theological building block. Second theological building block is we answer that objection by saying there is a distinction between the hidden will of God and the revealed will of God. And so it's very, very important if you want to find out what's the hidden will of God and the revealed will of God, it's important that we let the context drive the meaning or drive which which any particular passage is actually talking about. And so hopefully this is helpful for us. Hopefully it's helpful for us so that when people throw out a, a 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 as a proof text to try to deny God's sovereignty and salvation, hopefully we can stay, stand here with the ocean of Scripture, with the doctrines which we've believed right throughout church history by the vast majority of Orthodox um, uh, Christians. We can stand with them and say no. We are not going to throw out the whole ocean of Scripture just because you throw a particular verse at me that's not in context and there are some theological ways of thinking about them. We don't throw out the greater just because we might have an initial question mark over the lesser. Instead, we try to work out the lesser in the context, the greater context of the greater. Well, this brings our study to an end, a proper end, not just my closing. This does bring our study to an end today. And what have we looked at? We've looked at, firstly last week, that the certainty of Christ's return. Today, we've looked at the timing of Christ's return. Next week, chapter 3, finishing chapter 3, the response to Christ's return. But in the meantime, make sure that we take hold of the main truths from the passage that we've been studying through today. Make sure we don't dismiss those. Hopefully, we don't go and think, oh, I don't remember anything about what the text said, you know, all I remember was some talk about unconditional election and all the rest of it, Arminianism. Hopefully we don't remember that. Only that, I should say. 
But let's take, the, take hold of the truths that we've seen from the passage. What, what are the truths that we, we see from the passage? Well, may we remember that God is eternal. May we remember that what that means is that we cannot interpret God's timetable by our human reckoning of time. Things that seem like a long time to us is not a long time to God. Simply by the fact that God views God's perspective of time as different than ours. That's the first thing. God is eternal. But the second thing, may we remember that God is patient, that God is kind, that God is gracious. There is only one reason for why Christ has not yet returned, and that is that because God is giving an opportunity to those who will be saved an opportunity to be saved. And so may we not fall into the trap of seeing the this, this seeming delay in Christ's return as an opportunity to just be living for this life alone with an earthly perspective. May we not think of Christ's delay thinking, well, things are just going to continue the way that they always have been. I'm just going to get on with my life. I'm going to get my house, get myself settled, do all these things, and then just kind of just sort of meander through this life here and now. Let's, may that not happen to us. But instead, may we remember the reason for the delay, the reason for why Christ has not yet come, and may we be part of God's work in participating in that reaching those for whom Christ is patiently waiting for. We need to show that patience just as God is showing patience. May we be at work. May we not get consumed by the here and the now, thinking it's always going to continue the way it always has. But may we be about the work. Christ is waiting for certain people, then there is a number that only Christ knows. There is a number that only Christ knows. It says in Romans chapter 11, that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It talks about the fullness. There is a number. There is a point in time. There is a, there is a number. And we don't know where, what that number is. We don't know when that point of time is. But may we be about God's business in the meantime, knowing that there is a number. There is coming a day. And the only reason that Christ hasn't returned by the end of the sermon <laughs> is because there are still more people to come to Christ, still more people whom he wants to graciously save. May we, may we be about that work. May we use our time now, what, may we use the seeming delay in our thinking to match up with the reason for why Christ has not yet come. Amen? Let's pray. And just invite the music team to come up as I pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Um, thank you uh, for your sovereignty. Thank you that you are eternal. Help us to remember that. Um, help, help us to remember how kind you are, how gracious, how patient you are with us, and, and help us to be the same with others. For those who seem that are in our lives right now that may be taking a lot of patience, a lot of long suffering as we share with them, God, help us to always remember how patient and how kind and how long suffering you have been and you are with us. Let us not get distracted by things of a temporal nature, but help the things of a temporal nature just enhance us to be able to do what it is that you want to do, which is of an eternal nature. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.